Chapter 28, Part 1 of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ron Martin. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 2. Paris in Prison by Giacomo Casanova. Translated by Arthur Maschin. Episode 10. Under the Leads. Chapter 28, Part 1. The Subterranean Prisons, Known as the Wells. Lawrence's Vengeance. I enter into a correspondence with another prisoner. Father Baldi. His character. I plan with him a means of escape. How I contrive to let him have my pike. I am given a scoundrelly companion, his portrait. I was thus anxious and despairing when two of the guards brought me my bed. They went back to fetch the rest of my belongings, and for two hours I saw no one although the door of my cell remained open. This unnatural delay engendered my thoughts, but I could not fix exactly on the reason of it. I only knew that I had everything to fear, and this knowledge made me brace up my mind so that I should be able to meet calmly all possible misfortunes. Besides the leads and the fours, the state inquisitors also possess certain horrible subterranean cells beneath the ducal palace, where are sent men whom they do not wish to put to death, though they be thought worthy of it. These subterranean prisons are precisely like tombs, but they call them wells because they always contain two feet of water, which penetrates from the sea by the same grating by which light is given, this grating being only a square foot in size. If the unfortunates condemned to live in these sewers do not wish to take a bath of filthy water, they have to remain all day seated on a trestle, which serves them both for bed and cupboard. In the morning they are given a pitcher of water, some thin soup, and a ration of army bread, which they have to eat immediately for it becomes the prey of the enormous water-rats who swarm in those dreadful abodes. Usually the wretches condemned to the wells are imprisoned there for life, and there have been prisoners who have attained a great age. A villain who died whilst I was under the leads had passed thirty-seven years in the wells, and he was forty-four when sentenced. Knowing that he deserved death, it is possible that he took his imprisonment as a favor, for there are men who fear naught save death. His name was Begelin, a Frenchman by birth, he had served in the Venetian army during the last war against the Turks in 1716 under the command of Field Marshal the Count of Schulenburg, who made the Grand Vizier raise the siege of Corfu. This Begelin was the Marshal's spy. He disguised himself as a Turk and penetrated into the Mussulman quarters, but at the same time he was also in the service of the Grand Vizier, and being detected in this course he certainly had reason to be thankful for being allowed to die in the wells. The rest of his life must have been divided between weariness and hunger, but no doubt he often said, Dum vita superest bene est. I have seen Spielberg in Moravia, prisons fearful in another way. There mercy sends the prisoners under sentence of death, and not one of them ever survives a year of imprisonment. What mercy! During the two mortal hours of suspense, full of somber thoughts and the most melancholy ideas, I could not help fancying that I was going to be plunged in one of these horrible dens where the wretched inhabitants feed on idle hopes or become the prey of panic fears. The tribunal might well send him to hell who had endeavored to escape from purgatory. Last I heard hurried steps, and I soon saw Lawrence standing before me, transformed with rage, foaming at the mouth, and blaspheming God and his saints. He began by ordering me to give him the hatchet and the tools I had used to pierce the floor and to tell him from which of the guards I'd got the tools. 
Without moving and quite calmly, I told him that I did not know what he was talking about. At this reply, he gave orders that I should be searched, but rising with a determined air, I shook my fist at the knaves, and having taken off my clothes, I said to them, Do your duty, but let no one touch me. They searched my mattress, turned my bed inside out, felt the cushions of my armchair, and found nothing. You won't tell me, then, where are the instruments with which you made the hole? It's of no matter, as we shall find a way to make you speak. If it be true that I have made a hole at all, I shall say that you gave me the tools, and that I have returned them to you. This threat, which made his followers smile with glee, probably because he had been abusing them, he stamped his feet, tore his hair, and went out like one possessed. The guards returned and brought me all my properties, the whetstone and the lamp excepted. After locking up my cell, he shut the two windows, which gave me a little air. I thus found myself confined in a narrow space without the possibility of receiving the least breath of air from any quarter. Nevertheless, my situation did not disturb me to any great extent, as I must confess I thought I had got off cheaply. In spite of his training, Lawrence had not thought of turning the armchair over, and thus, finding myself still possessor of the iron bar, I thanked Providence and thought myself still at liberty regard the bar as means by which, sooner or later, I should make my escape. I passed a sleepless night as much from the heat as the change in my prospects. At daybreak, Lawrence came and brought some insufferable wine and some water I should not have cared to drink. All the rest was of a piece, dry salad, putrid meat, and bread harder than English biscuit. He cleaned nothing, and when I asked him to open the windows, he seemed not to hear me. But a guard, armed with an iron bar, began to sound all over my room, against the wall, on the floor, and above all, under my bed. I looked on with an unmoved expression, but it did not escape my notice that the guard did not sound the ceiling. That way, said I to myself, will lead me out of this place of torments. But for any such project to succeed, I should have to depend purely on chance, for all my operations would leave visible traces. The cell was quite new, and the least scratch would have attracted the notice of my keepers. I passed a terrible day, for the heat was like that of a furnace, and I was quite unable to make any use of the food with which I had been provided. The perspiration and lack of nourishment made me so weak that I could neither walk nor read. Next day my dinner was the same. The horrible smell of the veal the rascal brought me made me draw back from it instantly. "'Have you received orders,' said I, "'to kill me with hunger and heat?' He locked the door and went out without a word. On the third day I was treated in the same manner. I asked for a pencil and paper to write to the secretary. Still no answer. In despair, I ate my soup, and then soaking my bread in a little cypress wine, I resolved to get strength to avenge myself on Lawrence by plunging my pike into his throat. My rage told me that I had no other course, but I grew calmer in the night, and in the morning when the scoundrel appeared, I contented myself with saying that I would kill him as soon as I was at liberty. He only laughed at my threat, and again went out without opening his lips. I began to think that he was acting under orders from the secretary, to whom he must have told all. I knew not what to do. I strove between patience and despair. It felt as if I were dying for want of food. At last on the eighth day, with rage in my heart and a voice of thunder, I bade him, under the name of Hangman, and in the presence of the archers, give me an account of my money. He answered dryly that I should have it the next day. Then, as he was about to go, I took my bucket and made as if I would go and empty it in the passage. Foreseeing my design, he told the guard to take it, and during the disgusting operation, opened a window which he shut as soon as the affair was done, so that in spite of my remonstrances, I was left in the plague-stricken atmosphere. 
I determined to speak to him still worse the next day. But as soon as he appeared, my anger cooled, for before giving me the account of my money, he presented me with a basket of lemons which Monsieur de Bragadin had sent me, also a large bottle of water which seemed drinkable, and a nice roasted fowl. And besides this, one of the guards opened the two windows. When he gave me the account, I only looked at the sum total, and I told him to give the balance to his wife, with the exception of a sequin, which I told him to give the guards who were with him. I thus made friends with these fellows, who thanked me heartily. Lawrence, who remained alone with me on purpose, spoke as follows. You have already told me, sir, that I myself furnished you with the tools to make that enormous hole, and I will ask no more about it. But would you kindly tell me where you get the materials to make a lamp? From you. Well, for the moment, sir, I'm dashed, for I did not think that wit meant impudence. I'm not telling you any lies. You it was who with your own hands gave me all the requisites, oil, slant, and matches, the rest I had by me. You are right, but can you show me as simply that I gave you the tools to make that hole? Certainly, for you are the only person who has given me anything. Lord, have mercy upon me. What do I hear? Tell me, then, how I gave you a hatchet. I will tell you the whole story, and I will speak the truth, but only in the presence of the secretary. I don't wish to know any more, and I believe everything you say. I only ask you to say nothing about it, as I am a poor man with a family to provide for. He went out with his head between his hands. I congratulated myself heartily on having found a way to make the rascal afraid of me. He thought that I knew enough to hang him. I saw that his own interest would keep him from saying anything to his superiors about the matter. I had told Lawrence to bring me the works of Mathe, but the expense displeased him, though he did not dare to say so. He asked me what I could want with books with so many to my hand. I read them all, I said, and want some fresh ones. I will get someone who is here to lend you his books. If you will lend yours in return, thus you will save your money. Perhaps the books are romances, for which I do not care. They are scientific works, and if you think yours is the only long head here, you are very much mistaken. Very good, we shall see. I will lend this book to the long head, and do you bring me one from him. I had given him Pitao's Rationarium, and in four minutes he brought me the first volume of Wolf's works. Well pleased with it, I told him, much to his delight, that I would do without Mathe. Less pleased with the learned reading than at the opportunity to begin a correspondence with someone who might help me in my plan of escape, which I had already sketched out in my head, I opened the book as soon as Lawrence was gone, and was overjoyed to find on one of the leaves the maxim of Seneca, Calamitosis est animus futuri ansius, paraphrased in six elegant verses. I made another six on the spot, and this is the way in which I contrived to write them. I had let the nail of my little finger grow long to serve as an earpick. I out it to a point and made a pen of it. I had no ink, and I was going to prick myself and write in my blood. When I bethought me that the juice of some mulberries I had by me would be an excellent substitute for ink, besides the six verses, I wrote out a list of my books and put it in the back of the same book. It must be understood that Italian books are generally bound in parchment, and in such a way that when the book is open, the back becomes a kind of pocket. On the title page I wrote, La Tête. I was anxious to get an answer, so the next day I told Lawrence that I had read the book and wanted another, and in a few minutes the second volume was in my hands. As soon as I was alone I opened the book and found a loose leaf of following communication in Latin. Both of us are in the same prison, and to both of us it must be pleasant to find how the ignorance of our jailer procures us a privilege before unknown to such a place. I, Marinbaldi, who write to you, am a Venetian of high birth, and a regular cleric, and my companion is Count André Asquin of Houdin, the capital of Rioli. 
He begs me to inform you that all the books in his possession, of which you will find a list at the back of this volume, are at your service. But we warn you that we must use all possible care to prevent our correspondence being discovered by Lawrence. In our position, there was nothing wonderful in our both pitching on the idea of sending each other the catalogs of our small libraries, or in our choosing the same hiding place, the back of the books. All this was plain common sense, but the advice to be careful contained on the loose leaf struck me with some astonishment. It seemed next to impossible that Lawrence should leave the book unopened. But if he had opened it, he would have seen the leaf, and not knowing how to read, he would have kept it in his pocket till he could get someone to tell him the contents, and thus all would have been strangled at its birth. This made me think that my correspondent was an errant blockhead. After reading through the list, I wrote who I was, how I had been arrested, my ignorance as to what crime I had committed, and my hope of soon becoming free. Balby then wrote me a letter of sixteen pages, in which he gave me the history of all his misfortunes. He had been four years in prison, and the reason was that he had enjoyed the good graces of three girls, of whom he had three children, all of whom he baptized under his own name. The first time his superior had let him off with an admonition, the second time he was threatened with punishment, and on the third and last occasion he was imprisoned. The father superior of his convent brought him his dinner every day. He told me in his letter that both the superior and the tribunal were tyrants, since they had no lawful authority over his conscience, that being sure that the three children were his, he thought himself constrained as a man of honor not to deprive them of the advantage of bearing his name. He finished by telling me that he had found himself obliged to recognize his children to prevent slander attributing them to others, which would have injured the reputation of the three honest girls who bore them. Besides, he could not stifle the voice of nature, which spoke so well on behalf of these little ones. His last words were, there is no danger of the superior falling into the same fault as he confines his attention to the boys. This letter made me know my man, eccentric, sensual, a bad logician, vicious, a fool, indiscreet, and ungrateful. All this appeared in his letter, for after telling me that he should be badly off without Count Asquin, who was seventy years old and had books and money, he devoted two pages to abusing him, telling me of his faults and follies. In society I should have nothing more to do with a man of his character, but under the leads I was obliged to put everything to some use. I found in the back of the book a pencil, pens, and paper, and I was thus enabled to write at my ease. He told me also the history of the prisoners who were under the leads, and of those who had been there since his imprisonment. He said that the guard who secretly brought him whatever he wanted was called Nicholas. He also told me the names of the prisoners and what he knew about them, and to convince me he gave me the history of the hole I had made. It seems I had been taken from my cell to make room for the patrician Priuli, and that Lawrence had taken two hours to repair the damage I had done, and that he had imparted the secret to the carpenter, the blacksmith, and all the guards under pain of death if they revealed it. In another day, the guard had said, Casanova would have escaped, and Lawrence would have swung, for though he pretended great astonishment when he saw the hole, there can be no doubt that he and no other provided the tools. Nicholas has told me, added my correspondent, that Monsieur de Bragadin has promised him a thousand sequins if he will aid you to make your escape, but that Lawrence, who knows of it, hopes to get the money without risking his neck, his plan being to obtain your liberty by means of the influence of his wife with Monsieur Diedo. None of the guards dare to speak of what happened for fear Lawrence might get himself out of the difficulty and take his revenge by having them dismissed. He begged me to tell him all the details and how I got the tools, and to count upon his keeping the secret. I had no doubts as to his curiosity, but many as to his discretion, 
and this very request showed him to be the most indiscreet of men. Nevertheless, I concluded that I must make use of him, for he seemed to me the kind of man to assist me in my escape. I began to write an answer to him, but a sudden suspicion made me keep back what I had written. I fancied that the correspondence might be a mere artifice of Lawrence's to find out who had given me the tools and what I had done with them. To satisfy him without compromising myself, I told him that I had made the hole with a strong knife in my possession, which I had placed on the window ledge in the passage. In less than three days, this false confidence of mine made me feel secure, as Lawrence did not go to the window, as he would certainly have done if the letter had been intercepted. Furthermore, Father Balby told me that he could understand how I might have a knife, as Lawrence had told him that I had not been searched previous to my imprisonment. Lawrence himself had received no orders to search me, and this circumstance might have stood him in good stead if I had succeeded in escaping, as all prisoners handed over to him by the captain of the guard were supposed to have been searched already. On the other hand, Monsieur Grandi might have said that, having seen me get out of my bed, he was sure that I had no weapons about me, and thus both of them would have got out of trouble. The monk ended by begging me to send him my knife by Nicholas, on whom I might rely. The monk's thoughtlessness seemed to me almost incredible. I wrote and told him that I was not at all inclined to put my trust in Nicholas, and that my secret was not one to be imparted in writing. However, I was amused by his letters. In one of them he told me why Count Asquin was kept under the leads, in spite of his helplessness, for he was enormously fat, and as he had a broken leg, which had been badly set, he could hardly put one foot before another. It seems that the Count, not being a very wealthy man, followed the profession of a barrister at Udin, and in that capacity defended the country folk against the nobility, who wished to deprive the peasants of their vote in the assembly of the province. The claims of the farmers disturbed the public peace, and by way of bringing them to reason, the nobles had recourse to the state inquisitors, who ordered the Count Barrister to abandon his clients. The Count replied that the municipal law authorized him to defend the Constitution, and would not give in. Whereon the inquisitors arrested him, law or no law, and for the last five years he had breathed the invigorating air of the leaves. Like myself, he had fifty sous a day, but he could do what he liked with the money. The monk, who was always penniless, told me a good deal of the disadvantage of the Count, whom he represented as very miserly. He informed me that in the cell on the other side of the hall there were two gentlemen of the seven townships, who were likewise imprisoned for disobedience, but one of them had become mad and was in chains. In another cell, he said, there were two lawyers. My suspicions quieted. I reasoned as follows. End of chapter 28, part 1. Recording by Ron Martin.